Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In 2022, Arizona passed one of the most comprehensive school choice programs in the nation. But later that year, the state elected Katie Hobbs, a governor who is backed by the teachers' unions, and she has targeted that program for elimination, even as other states, like Iowa and Texas, consider similar expansions to school choice programs. Joining my colleague Hayden Ludwig and I to discuss Arizona's proposed retreat as other states advance school choice is Jason Bedrick research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Jason, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work for Heritage? Uh, Sure. Uh, So I've been working uh, essentially in the school choice movement for uh, more than 15 years now. I'm also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. I was the director of policy at EdChoice, formerly known as the Milton Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, founded by the Nobel Prize winning Laureate, uh, who was uh, in economics, who wanted to uh, advance school choice all across the country. Uh, And I've been doing it because I I benefited from a great public school education. I was I chose my parents wisely uh, and uh, they were able to afford to live in a district that had a high quality public school system, at least through eighth grade. Uh, And they were also um, they could afford to send me to a private high school. And I wanted, uh, you know, if, if the American dream means anything, it means a quality of opportunity. And for that, uh, you need to have a system where every child has access to a school that's the right fit for him or her. And so uh, school choice has been my passion, and that's what I've been working on. So let's look at a state that, at least until very recently, was doing very well, and that's Arizona. Uh, what what did they pass? What was, or I guess still is, and what is the sta- what is the status of the program there with the new governor? Yeah, sir, still in effect. Uh, so Arizona in 2011 passed a the, the nation's first K-12 education savings account program. Uh, so this is not to be confused with like Coverdell college savings accounts. These are uh, accounts that uh, are funded with 90% of the state's per pupil allocation um, that they would otherwise spend on a child in the, in the public school system. So for a typical child, that's about $7,000. Uh, when the program was initially enacted, it was only for students with special needs, and they can get a lot more because depending on the special need, right? So some of them are getting maybe 12000 some 15, mm-hmm. 20, 25, depending, you know, if they're... Uh, you know, if, if it's something like um, yeah, depend, depending on what the need what the need happens or, to or be, something like that, right? Uh, that's been expanded over the years. Last year, Governor Ducey and the legislature expanded it to all students in Arizona. Uh, so it's a universal program. And uh, since it went into effect, um, the number of participating students uh, rapidly increased. It was about ten thousand kids last year. Uh, right now, they're getting close to 50,000 students who are participating. Uh, but Governor Hobbs, in her proposed budget, would entirely roll back the expansion, take those scholarships away from close to 40,000 students, and go back to the way things were before. So where does that, where does that role, proposed rollback stand? Where, like, can, uh, well, can right Governor now, Hobbs the, do that? The House and Senate leadership, uh, both are controlled by Republicans, but with a one-vote majority in each chamber. Uh, Both have said that her proposal is dead on arrival. 
but it only really takes a couple of Republicans in each chamber to jump ship. Uh, you know, if they were horse trading, if the governor promised them uh, something for their district or, or who knows what, uh, and they were to join the Democrats, uh, you know, it could be in danger. Uh, right now, the um, budget proposals have not gone forward. Um, the legislative leadership in both chambers is very strong. As a matter of fact, the current Speaker of the House, Ben Toma, was the majority leader last year. He was the one who sponsored the expansion legislation. Uh, so this was his signature achievement. I think it's unlikely he's going to uh, let it be rolled back, especially when so many of his constituents, not only his own district, but uh, across the state, are so wildly supportive of the program. So in other words, we're looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, at a time when school choice is largely advancing across the country, one of these states that's really done a good job at advancing school choice is threatened by, with a rollback that would, what, I mean, endanger in, in parents' choice in all of this and the opportunities that a lot of Arizona children, school children, are presented with. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and the, with these accounts, it's not just it's like, a, like a voucher. Uh, you can use it for private school tuition, but you can also use it for things like tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and you can roll over unused expenses from year to year to save for later. Uh, families, though, I don't think are going to uh, let this happen. Uh, the, there's really been an awakening in Arizona uh, around uh, education. And I mean, as we've seen across the country, but really especially here, Arizona has been a pioneer in school choice for a long time. And there are a number of very well organized parent groups that have been out there in front of this, organizing families, letting them know this is what's going on at the state capitol. And I don't think that they're going to let Hobbs uh, succeed with this. I'd like to I'd like to actually go into that a little deeper. Um, so in recent year in the recent years, basically since the COVID pandemic, there have been big strides for school choice. Obviously, Arizona, we've been discussing West Virginia, a couple of other states, there are states, uh, Iowa uh, and Utah, I think most are most advanced in this legislative season uh, that are considering substantial expansions. Why now? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think a lot of it does have to do uh, not with COVID itself, but really the response of the school systems to COVID. Mm. And so you had, uh, you know, parents, I think, were very um, understanding in, in that first semester, you know, March of 2020. Yeah, the, the conclusion of the 2019-2020 year. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they were, you know, they understood, you know, we weren't, it wasn't clear what was happening or anything like that, but they expected that schools were going to get their act together over the summer and there was going to be a plan. Um, and that that plan wasn't just going to be, let's keep shutting down and let's, uh, you know, do, um, you know, basically try to replicate in-person instruction, but over Zoom. And uh, for far too many families, that was the experience that they got. Uh, parents also got a peek inside the classroom, and a lot of times they didn't like what they saw. They were uh, <laughs> right. disappointed with the low quality of the instruction, or uh, they were concerned about the politicization of the classroom. To what, to, what ex to what extent do you think that it's the lockdowns versus that peek inside? Like, is is it more the critical race theory, the uh, left wing gender ideology, or is it more when we needed them, the schools weren't there? Yeah, it's hard to say. 
it's really hard to say, and I think it varies by area. Um, uh, you know, like for example, in um, in Virginia, in the gubernatorial election, um, I was going to say last year, really two years ago now, uh, when Governor Yunkin won, uh, a lot of it had to do with the lockdowns initially. But then, of course, the story breaks that there was uh, a boy who was identifying as a girl and, you know, actually sexually assaulted a girl in the bathroom and that school officials covered it up. And all of a sudden that became a real driving force. So it really is regional depending on, you know, what what's hitting the news. Um, well, and that but it's a, it's a confluence of factors. I would say that the thread that runs through it is that parents feel that the their local schools are breaking trust with the parents, whether it's keeping closed, whether it's you know putting biological males on female sports teams and in female locker rooms, whether it's teaching critical race theory, and then when parents complain, doing the same thing but calling it something else. Um, hiding when children are um, being socially transitioned at school, being called different names than are on their birth certificate, being called by different pronouns that, that don't match their biological sex, and not telling parents for a long time. I mean, it's over and over what parents are, the message parents are getting is we can't trust these schools because they, they think they know better than us and that they can just do what they're going to do without our input. Hayden, you were about to jump in. Well, yeah, I was going to say the that that um, that battle erupting in Loudoun County, which is yeah. not a hotbed of right wing politics by any means in Northern Virginia. But Jason, is it is it fair to say when you're talking about the public school system maybe fighting back? Could we say that this is somewhat the revenge of the teachers' unions, right in Arizona? I mean, is that fair to characterize it as? In that they want to roll this back, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean. Uh, Governor Hobbs' sister is a, a teachers union boss, uh, and she put uh, the president of the main teachers union in the state of Arizona on her transition team, along with another teachers union lobbyist, who is their former communications director. And I mean, the the Hobbs campaign and the teachers unions are very, very close. And so I think this is something that Hobbs felt politically she needed to do. Uh, I just don't think that at the end of the day she's going to have the political juice to do it because uh, parents have really woken up on this issue uh, and they have been energizing their own state legislators to hold the line on this issue. To what extent is the opposition to school choice just the teachers' unions? And there we can include also in states that have them administrators' unions uh, versus other other groups who else in addition to the teachers union is pushing back yeah uh so i would actually say that the the most effective opponents are the superintendents you know so are part of the administrators um they're not at you know in the news as often especially because i mean the unions tend to be the ones going out in front they know how to give a punch they know how to take a punch um the the superintendents tend to operate behind the scenes, right? They'll just call the state legislator into their office and say, look, um, you know, if, if this school choice program passes, we expect so many kids are going to leave and, you know, then we're going to lose X amount of dollars and then I'm going to have to, you know, cut the cheerleading program and fire 10 teachers and we're going to blame you, right? The classic uh, Washington Monument strategy. Um, <laughs> you know, don't cut the fat. Uh, you know, even though... Uh, you know, over the last 40 years, 
uh, ad administrative bloat uh, has increased by uh, about 700%, uh, according to a, an EdChoice report by uh, Dr. Ben Scafidi uh, called the Back to the Staffing Surge. But we're not going to cut all the administrative bloat. No, we're, what we're going to do is we're going we're to cut popular things. Um, so, yeah, I think those are actually the most popular. But, but really, I mean, look, there, there is this um, coalition politics on the left generally. And so you'll see... Uh, the ACLU um, will file a lawsuit uh, against the school choice program in, in different states. Uh, that's happening less and less because they've lost so many times, and I think they, they realize that they, they just aren't going to win the courts anymore. Um, but Americans United for separation of uh, church and state, uh, mm. there's a number of different groups. Uh, and then there are the, you know, there are a number of different front groups that the unions, uh, you know, the Coalition for Public Education, things like that, or Network for Public Education. I mean, these are just essentially teacher union front groups. But there are a number of groups on the left that sort of work together to try to thwart school choice. Yeah, you know, um, I, I want to steer the direction towards what their arguments are saying. You know, we're very familiar, obviously, with how the nonprofit left the professional entrenched activist class in the states and in Washington push policy right on, on the two parties and really really set the, the course of um, of the two parties uh, well their policies but you know you mentioned in your your article in the Wall Street Journal that that the governor Hobbs is putting forward arguments that that the school choice laws in place are actually going to cost more money than removing them but what you mentioned earlier is that no, it's it's only ninety percent of the cost of the full one hundred percent of cost normally under this public program. How are they making these arguments that they're saving money by removing the choice that that you're saying is so much cheaper? Right, and again, it's it's only uh, the ESAs, the education savings accounts, are are funded with ninety percent of the state portion, zero percent of the federal portion, zero percent of the local portion. Uh, so that's about seven thousand dollars, but. Uh, the cost of, uh, you know, the average per pupil expenditure in Arizona is, is north of $12,000. Uh, but even just looking at that, at that state portion, what Hobbs wants to do is look only at the cost, right? So let's take the number of participating students, multiply it by the amount that they're getting per student, and that's the cost. What she doesn't want to look at is uh, all the savings when those students leave the traditional system and join the ESA. And so there was uh, a, a recent study by the Common Sense Institute uh, that actually looked at changes in enrollment trends uh, over time and, and found that actually there has been about $500 million in annual statewide savings um, wow. over the last several years because of uh, changes to enrollment uh, based on, you know, there was the, the 2019 budget had certain projections uh, based on Arizona's population growth of where they're going to be going. The public school system is about 70,000 students below where they should have been. Uh, and they have actually, in real numbers, declined by about 31,000 students, uh, you know, which means, you know, those 31,000 students are students who switched and then you've got about 40,000 students who were expected to enroll but didn't. They either went to the charter school sector or took an ESA or a tax credit scholarship or, or something else. So uh, when, you, when you look at the whole trend, this has actually been uh, a major saver for the taxpayer. Hmm. You know, one of the 
one of the things I think that matters most to listeners is is what does this actually mean for families in Arizona? So if I'm if I'm a young family with three small children, you know, grade school, high school children in Phoenix, what does this ESA program, what are the vouchers, what does that actually mean? Am I not no longer locked into the aging, decrepit school down the street whose politics might not align with my religious values. And there's another and there's another, and there's another uh, thing I want to build off that in keeping with Hayden's point about what does it actually mean for the parents and the students. Um, you know, historically, before COVID, it was even in red states, there was a hesitation to move forward with school choice because everybody liked theirs. Even if they thought the schools generally were poor, their school was fine. Yeah. Is, has COVID changed that? So a lot of the, there, there's polling that asks about local schools versus schools nationally. Uh, and we are still seeing a split where people like their local schools more. Um, but at the same time, I mean, even the teachers unions had a poll that found um, that about half of, of uh, parents said that uh, they thought the public school system was too politicized, uh, that, that the, you know, that the classroom itself was was too politicized. And uh, at the same time, we're seeing record high levels of support for school choice. Um, it was already trending up before covid but it's it's gone even higher since then. Uh, in Arizona, uh, the most recent poll from Morning Consult showed that two thirds of Arizonans support the education savings account program. And if you look at parents of children who are school age, seventy seven percent support the program. Uh, and there's a reason for it. To, to Hayden's point, uh, no one school can be all things to all children. No one school is going to be the best fit for every kid who just happens to live nearby. And parents recognize that in every other area of our lives, we've got a wide variety of choices and we pick what works for us. Uh, and yet in, in public education, we've got this antiquated system where you are assigned to a building based on the location of the home that you could afford. And we're trying to break that link between real estate, you know, the real estate market and your people say, well, we have school choice. It's called the real estate market. Right. Break that. Well, link. And, and if you're and if you're rich enough to pay tuition, you have even more choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so what we want to do is, no, let's just have the money fall the child. And, uh, you know, it can mean everything for these. I've talked to so many families who have said, you know, this was a godsend for us. You know, we. Um, we didn't know that this program existed. And then, uh, you know, our daughter was really struggling in the school and we were trying all these different things and it just wasn't working. Uh, and then, you know, maybe they put her in a private school and that still didn't work. And, but then maybe they found a different private school or they, they found uh, a homeschool co-op or it was a micro school, uh, or it was a hybrid homeschooling program. I mean, there's so many different things that people are trying these days, but, you know, we finally found the environment that was right for my child and, you know, whereas they were anxious and acting out before and getting failing grades, you know, now they're thriving and they love education. They wake up every day excited to go to school. I mean, these are things that uh, are, it's just, you know, incalculable how valuable this is to, to families. So, you know, this hasn't been the lightest conversation because we're worried about the rearguard action in Arizona. But now let's look to something a little bit more optimistic. And that's what's going on in other states. Um, where... 
you know, in these in this current you know crop of state legislative sessions in 2023, what states look like they're going to enact their own programs or, you know, lay the groundwork for future programs? I mean, it feels like all of them. Uh, but no, but really, there's there's a lot of action this year. Uh, 2021 was the, the first major legislative cycle before, uh, you know, after the COVID lockdowns. And that was the biggest year for school choice, uh, where 19 states passed, I think it was 27 new or expanded school choice programs. Uh, we have a, the potential to beat that this year. Uh, Iowa already, I mean, we're in National School Choice Week right now, and uh, Iowa uh, already passed a universal education savings account through the House and Senate called the Students First Act. Uh, so the, so that's, now, that's now with the governor for signature or being she reconciled signed it, in uh, committee? on Tuesday. So it is okay. now law. Um, it starts wow. It starts with low-income students, and uh, it, it, it phases into universal over three years. Uh, so that's now the third state after, uh, you know, Arizona and West Virginia. So there are now three states that have universal ESAs. Uh, <clears throat> in Utah, there is a universal multi-use scholarship bill. It's not quite an ESA. There's no rollover provision, but otherwise very similar to an ESA um, called Utah Fits All. That's already passed the House and is being considered by the Senate, and it has the support of uh, Governor Cox. So that's very likely to pass. Uh, and then I'm afraid I'm going to miss some states, but uh, just off the top of my head. Uh, you <laughs> that's know, a good problem. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, usually this is not a problem that I have, uh, but, but this year it is. Uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, uh, Florida, Ohio, Indiana, uh, several other states as well. But th- those ones all have either universal ESAs or universal scholarship bills. And uh, a number of other states like Idaho, Nebraska, Georgia uh, are either uh, considering adopting smaller scale but still significant school choice programs or or expanding the ones that they already have. Now, these ESA programs uh, as vouchers, these are run by the state. Will this help break some of the stranglehold that the federal education department has over state education? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, because it's we talk about education being local. There's nothing more local than having decisions about education be made by the families themselves. Um, and so, whereas the federal Department of Ed uh, has quite a bit of control, uh, there was a quip from Matt Ladner in the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago that the uh, you know the federal government accounts for about. of education funding and 60% of the regulations. Uh, And, you know, that's, that's true in the public school system. Uh, But this is opening the door to a whole wide variety of options for families that aren't accountable to the federal government. Uh, They're accountable to families and they're not using federal dollars. They're only using state dollars. Uh, And so, yeah, I I think over time, what this is going to do is this is going to, uh, encourage a lot more innovation in uh, the education sector, and over time, you're going to see the market evolve based on uh, not what some bureaucrat or politician thinks it should do, but based on the actual responses of families. 
Well, uh, Jason, before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd uh, that we missed that you'd like to add or anything that you're working on that you'd like our listeners to know about? Yeah, I mean, you can go to our website, heritage.org. There's a wide variety of uh, resources there. I'd actually, in particular, um, point you to our uh, Education Freedom Report Card, uh, which is uh, heritage.org slash education report card. Uh, we rank all 50 states uh, across a number of different measures of educational freedom, uh, including uh you know, they're, you know, how well they do empowering families with education choice, uh, you know, how transparent is the public school system, you know, can parents learn easily what's going on in their kid's classroom or not, uh, you know, regulatory freedom, uh, how much does the state, uh, you know, micromanage what's going on uh, in schools and or how much autonomy do they give. Uh, and also return on investment. Are you really getting the bang for your buck? Uh, so uh, you can go to, again, heritage.org slash education report card. You can learn all about that. Uh, and we even have, um, it, you can do a state-by-state -state comparison. And we have model legislation. You know, So for example, uh, there's the Academic Transparency Act that the Goldwater Institute came up with. Uh, we have something called the Given Name Act uh, that says essentially that uh, school officials and teachers are not allowed to call students by any other name other than what's on their official documents that the you know parents have submitted uh, or by any pronouns that don't uh, align with their biological sex without written permission from the child's parents, right, to keep parents involved. Um, there's also uh, the Women's Bill of Rights by the Independent Women's Voice. So a uh, lot of resources on our website. I uh, hope you check it out. Well, we will include that in today's show notes. Uh, thanks again to Jason Bedrick of the Heritage Foundation for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.